Good day, folks. Pastor Jim Thomas from the Village Chapel here in Nashville, Tennessee, with your daily devotional. Today, I'm going to do something a little different. I went down to my library downstairs and pulled uh, three of my most treasured possessions, in terms of books anyway. Uh, These three little tiny hardbacks are near, or they were either first editions or near first editions, of uh, the three books that end up uh, being published in 1952 as under the title Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And so I have the UK version of the first book, which is called Broadcast Talks. And then we have Christian Behavior, which was uh, published in 1943. And then Beyond Personality was published in 1944. I wanted to share these with you. I... Uh, I have them. I'm, I'm glad to have them. I'm very proud of them. But uh, they're not uh, much fun unless I get to share them with someone like you. So listen to the preface uh, reminding you that this is wartime. Uh, World War II ran from 1939 to 1945. Uh, some 70 to, uh, estimates are a little sketchy, but 70 to 85 million people died and. I think it's important for us to remember and to uh, history and to learn the lessons of history and to also see how faith functioned in the middle of history. So uh, just a little bit from the preface, it's just a single paragraph. And then the first part of what is uh, uh, right and wrong, a clue to the meaning of the universe, uh, which was part of this uh, uh, English version, this English edition called Broadcast Talks by C.S. Lewis and uh, published in 1942. I gave these talks, Lewis says, not because I'm anyone in particular, but because I was asked to do so. I think they asked me chiefly for two reasons. Firstly, because I'm a layman, not a clergyman. And secondly, because I had been a non-Christian for many years. It was thought that both these facts might enable me to understand the difficulties that ordinary people feel about the subject. I am Church of England now myself, but I have tried to put nothing into the second series of talks, which all Christians of all churches do not agree with. With this in view, I sent the script of four clergymen, one Church of England, one Roman Catholic, one Presbyterian, and one Methodist, before they were given on the air. The Church of England man and the Presbyterian agreed with me throughout, The Roman Catholic thought I went too far about the comparative unimportance of theories of the atonement, and in the fourth talk of the second series. The Methodists would have liked more faith in the fifth talk of that series. Both these differences you will find noted when you come to the place. Apart from those, I believe you can take what is said in the second series as plain Christianity, which no Christian disagrees with. The first series, of course, does not get as far as Christian doctrines. It is more what might be called philosophy. And then he, of course, is referring to this particular book. It's very small. You can see those of you who are watching anyway. It's a very small book um, with basically part one and part two. Part one is right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. And part two is what Christians believe. So I begin where he began. And I think this might be helpful for us all. Uh, Everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny and sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant. But however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kind of things they say. They say things like this. That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. 
Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. I gave you a bit of mine. How do you like it if anyone did the same to you? Come on, you promised. People say things like that every day, educated people as well as uneducated, and children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them isn't just saying that the other man's behavior doesn't happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies, to hell with your standard. Nearly always he tries to make out that what he has been doing doesn't really go against the standard, or that if it does, there is some special excuse. He pretends there is some special reason in this particular case why the person who took the seat first should not keep it, or that things were quite different when he was given the bit of orange, or that something has turned up which lets him off keeping his promise. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you like to call it, about which they really agreed and they have. If they hadn't, they might, of course, fight like animals, but they couldn't quarrel in the human sense of the word. Quarreling means trying to show that the other man's in the wrong. And there'd be no sense in trying to do that unless you and he had some sort of agreement as to what right and wrong are. Just that there'd be no sense in saying that a footballer had committed a foul unless there was some agreement about the rules of football. Now, this law or rule about right and wrong used to be called the law of nature. Nowadays, when we talk of the laws of nature, we usually mean things like gravitation or heredity or the laws of chemistry. But when the older thinkers called the law of right and wrong the law of nature, they really meant the law of human nature. The idea was that just as falling stones are governed by the law of gravitation and chemicals by chemical laws, so the creature called man also had his law, with this great difference, that the stone couldn't choose whether it obeyed the law of gravitation or not, but a man could choose either to obey the law of human nature or to disobey it. They called it law of nature because they thought that everyone knew it by nature and didn't need to be taught it. They didn't mean, of course, that you mightn't find an odd individual here and there who didn't know it, just as you find a few people who are colorblind or have no ear for a tune. But talking the race as a whole, they thought that the human idea of decent behavior was obvious to everyone. And I believe they were right. If they weren't, then all the things we say about this war are nonsense. What is the sense in saying the enemy are in the wrong unless right is a real thing? Which the, and this is of course a reference to his own time, which the Germans at bottom know as well as we do and ought to practice. If they had no notion of what we mean by right, then though we might still have to fight them, we could no more blame them for what, for that than the color of their hair. I know that some people say the idea of a law of nature or decent behavior known to all men is unsound because different civilizations in different ages have had quite different moralities, but they haven't. They have only had slightly different moralities. Just think 
what a quite different morality would mean. Think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle, or where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might just as well try to imagine a country where two and two made five. Men have different uh, have differed as regards what people you ought to be unselfish to, whether it was only your own family or your fellow countrymen or everyone. But they have always agreed that you oughtn't to put yourself first. Selfishness has never been admired. Men have differed as to whether you should have one wife or four, but they've always agreed that you mustn't simply have any woman you liked. But the most remarkable thing is this. Whenever you find a man who says he doesn't believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he'll be complaining. It's not fair before you can say Jack Robinson. A nation may say treaties don't matter, but then next minute they spoil their case by saying that the particular treaty they want to break was an unfair one. But if treaties don't matter, and if there's no such thing as right and wrong, in other words, if there's no law of nature, what is the difference between a fair treaty and an unfair one? Haven't they given away the fact that whatever they say, they really know the law of nature just like anyone else? It seems then we are forced to believe in a real right and wrong. People may be sometimes mistaken about them, just as people sometimes get their sums wrong, but they are not a matter of mere taste and opinion any more than the multiplication table. Now, if we're agreed about that, I go on to my next point, which is this. None of us are really keeping the law of nature. If there are any exceptions among you, I apologize to them. They'd better switch on to another station. Remember, he's reading this on radio. They'd better switch to another station for nothing, I'm going to say, concerns them. And now turning to the ordinary human beings who are left, I hope you won't misunderstand what I'm going to say. I'm not preaching, and heaven knows I'm not pretending that I'm better than anyone else. I'm only trying to call attention to a fact. The fact that this year or this month, or more likely this very day, we have failed to practice ourselves the kind of behavior we expect from other people. There may be all sorts of excuses for us. That time you were so unfair to the children was when you were very tired. That slightly shady business about the money, the one you've almost forgotten, came when you were very hard up and what you promised to do for old so-and-so and have never done. Well, you never would have promised if you'd known how frightfully busy you were going to be. And as for your behavior to your wife or husband... If I knew how irritating they could be, I wouldn't wonder at it. And who the dickens am I anyway? I am just the same. That is to say, I don't succeed in keeping the law of nature very well. And the moment anyone tells me I'm not keeping it, that starts up in my mind a, strong, a string of excuses as long as your arm. The question at the moment is not whether they are good excuses. The point is that they are one more proof of how deeply, whether we like it or not, we believe in the law of nature. 
If we didn't believe in decent behavior, why should we be so anxious to make excuses for not having behaved decently? The truth is we believe in decency so much. We feel the rule or law pressing on us so that we can't bear to face the fact that we're breaking it. And consequently, we try to shift the responsibility. For you notice that it's only for our bad behavior that we find all these explanations. We put our bad temper down to being tired or worried or hungry. We put our good temper down to ourselves. Well, those are the two points I wanted to make tonight. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and can't really get rid of it. Secondly, that they don't in fact behave in that way. They know the law of nature they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. That from the opening remarks of C.S. Lewis in a book that goes on to become known as Mere Christianity, but here I'm holding this older copy, uh, which is called Broadcast Talks, uh, early hardback UK edition uh, of... uh, C.S. Lewis's writing. Let me pray for us. Such a great insight. <laughs> As he begins to lay the case for the foundation, uh, or the foundational case for, for Christianity, it's really profound. Um, it's really universally true, isn't it? Yeah. It really corresponds to the way the real world is, whether you're talking on a global level or on a very personal level. And he's done both there quite well. Uh, Lord, we do come before you this day. Uh, We thank you for uh, the timeless truths of Scripture um, that would agree with so much of what we've just read. And the way that uh, Scripture itself is like a mirror held up to us to to show us the truth about ourselves. Uh, That all of us have sinned and fallen short of your glory, Lord. Uh, And we have done that. Uh, boldly, fully knowing well that we're doing wrong. We are culpable for our sin. And um, uh, Lord, we're so grateful that you've sent your son Christ uh, to break into the darkness of our world, to reveal uh, yourself to us in the person and work of Jesus, uh, his, uh, his brutal cross, his loving self-sacrifice on that cross uh, and his glorious resurrection. And even uh, as we are, uh, as I'm currently recording this anyway, we're uh, in this Lenten season thinking about Jesus as he makes his way to the cross uh, to pay for the sins of, uh, of the world. We are grateful that you have come. You didn't have to, you didn't owe it to us. How generous of you. How kind of you. Uh, We simply bow before you, lift up the empty hands of faith and receive uh, this amazing grace you've put on offer to us. And pray that for myself and my friends today, we would walk in that fully knowing um, and acknowledging uh, this great gift you've given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. 
This podcast is a resource of the Village Chapel in Nashville, Tennessee. Don't forget to also subscribe to one of our other podcasts, Curate's Corner with Kim Thomas. Every Friday throughout the season of Lent, join Kim as she looks at the story of Jesus' last week as told through classic art, prayers, and scriptures. You can subscribe to her podcast on all major platforms, including the Village Chapel YouTube channel, and you can find accompanying resources at lent.thevillagechapel.com. If you find this daily devotional beneficial, leave a review and share it with friends and family. For more resources or to support our ministry, visit our website, thevillagechapel.com. Artwork for this podcast by Kim Thomas, music by Phil Kagey. Thank you.